So as we're going through church history, we're in the solidly into the 20th century, and we're going to start talking about various conflicts of what's called the, the greatest generation. What do I mean when I say the greatest generation? Have you heard that expression before? Yeah, it's the, it's the people who were adults, even young adults in World War II. Um, multiple people have used that term. I think Tom Brokaw actually made that, kind of, this is his book, and, and made that into kind of a, a public meme. This idea of a generation that really came together to do something extraordinary. That generation also had its own sets of conflicts and things. And uh, some of those things were, were unique to the technological and the sociological changes of their day. For instance, technology, um, <coughs> as it always has, tends to change things. I don't know, I don't care. When we think technology today, we tend to think PowerPoints or our, our smartphones or things like that. And we go, oh, this is all new. Technology also includes things like radio. When radio hit, that changed everything. When the printing press hit, that changed everything. When the stirrup was invented, that changed everything. We tend to think technology, we think high-tech today, but technology has always been changing the way ministry has been done. So, 1934, the Radio Church of God was founded. Very different kind of church started on the radio. Started as a, uh, as a program in Eugene, Oregon, produced by the Church of God Adventist, which is a Seventh-day Adventist. Remember when we talked about the Seventh-day Adventists? And so, everybody glazing over. All right, I'm not going to take time talking about the Seventh-day Adventists again, but uh, a group that, that uh, emphasized uh, the, the, uh, the Seventh-day uh, Sabbath, emphasized that there will be a, kind of a secondary judgment when you get into heaven, etc. Anyway, the Radio Church of God kind of became its own thing and became essentially its own denomination, if not just movement of its own, led by a guy named Herbert W. Armstrong. Okay, so at least I, I, I say Seventh-day Adventist, everybody glazes. I say Herbert W. Armstrong, people go, oh. Okay, how many people have heard of Herbert? Okay. As time went on, Herbert started getting odder. Uh, he started distancing himself from orthodoxy, started talking more and more about having divine revelations from God, about his doctrines. Yet, at the same time, he kept assuring his, his listeners, all this is just in the Bible. You can just clearly see it. I mean, I have a special divine revelation that nobody's ever seen before, but it's clearly in the Bible, and anybody reading the Bible for themselves will clearly see this. Now, that doesn't automatically mean someone's wrong, but that should always be a little red flag waving in the distance. For 2,000 years, nobody but me has ever noticed this thing that is patently clear if you just read the Bible. It can happen. It can happen. But you should always just say, uh, what are the chances that I'm the one that figured out this kind of novelty? It's possible. Just be aware. He would, his big thing, and you'll find this actually with a number of, for lack of a better term, cults. He would give a ton, a ton of verses, out of context, plucked here and there, ton of verses to quote-unquote prove his point. Um, bizarre interpretations here, just delusion to the point where everybody just says, clearly, okay, I can't possibly keep track of this. I'm listening to the radio driving my car, and he's like, like this verse says, this verse says, this verse says, this verse says, and you find yourself saying, uh, okay, boy, he's so wise. I would have never gotten that. Jesus is, you know, a kumquat. I never would have gotten that from Isaiah 6.1. 
No, you wouldn't have, because it's not in there. Anyway, church grew, and it was renamed the Worldwide Church of God, which, if you haven't heard of George W. Armstrong, or George Armstrong, Herbert W. Armstrong, you might have heard of the Worldwide Church of God. Anyway, keeps getting weirder and weirder as things go on. He says, everybody else is apostate. We are the only church. All other churches, not really Christians. Again, when you hear this, this should be a slightly larger red flag waving. Everybody else for 2,000 years has been so wrong that they're not even remotely Christian. To be a true Christian, you absolutely have to follow all the Ten Commandments to the letter. Jesus' sacrifice alone, your faith in Christ alone, is not going to save you. There's no place in Scripture where it ever says you're saved by faith alone, and not by works. That's just crazy talk. Anyway... So, this means you have to follow the Sabbath, which, though Seventh-day Adventists are wrong, it's, 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 clearly, it's, it, it's clearly something you absolutely have to follow, or else you're going you're to go to hell, except that changes as time goes on, too. He says this is Saturday, not Sunday, so anybody who ever tells you the Sabbath is on Sunday is wrong. Uh, you have to abstain from unclean meats, you have to pay the tithe, uh, you have to follow the Jewish holy days. If you, st if you observe something like Easter or Christmas, clearly you're not a Christian. Clearly. There is no immortal soul in human beings. That when we die, you just enter into a sleep. And then you're going to be awakened by God when Jesus comes back. Which means you don't have to be scared of death. It's just sleeping. And if you're a good enough person, if you're a good enough person, then that's great. You get to, you get to wake up into eternal life. But that's why you, you shouldn't... You should, you shouldn't worry about death. You shouldn't go to the doctor. You shouldn't take medications. That's what faithless people do. Because they're afraid and they don't trust God. No, no, no. You should just pray for healing. And if you die, it's just because God wanted you to go to sleep. That makes total sense. Clearly, the Bible's very clear about this. If you just read it, clearly. Only an idiot wouldn't see that, right? So you see that because you're not an idiot, right? And people go, oh, Sure. Everyone on earth is a potential member of God's family. At the second coming, if you've been a good enough person, then you're going to be reawakened to eternal life with God as his literal physical child. You're going to be reborn and reawakened as his physical child. And he is your fleshly physical father. And if you haven't been righteous enough, you just won't wake up. There's no hell. After a while, he's like, yeah, why would I think there's a hell? No, the Bible never talks about hell. Clearly. So clearly, you just don't wake up. Although technically, he started eventually coming to say, "Oh, there's an in-between group. You're not good enough for salvation, but you're not bad enough for annihilation. So you'll wake up, and you'll have the opportunity to learn enough to choose God." So there's that. Britain and America clearly crucial to divine prophecy. I mean, you can't read Daniel and the Revelation without realizing the importance of Britain and America, right? Ever, ever hear anybody talk about how crucially important we happen to be on account of we're happening to be sitting here? An amazing amount of Americans believe that America is amazingly important to biblical prophecy. Primarily because the population of Britain, and thus of America, because America is its daughter state, the population of Britain are the direct descendants of the lost ten tribes of Israel. Right? And thus the true people of God. I mean, the Bible's clear when you look at it. I mean, you just, I mean, look at your basic Brit, and you say, genetic Jew. And 
as is clearly indicated in scripture, all Germans are descended from the Assyrians, who are the genetic enemies of the people of God. So just like Britain and America are clearly automatically the good guys, the Germans are automatically the bad guys. The Bible is incredibly clear. That, that means that we should destroy them, because the Old Testament made it very clear that Israel should be destroying Assyria, right? It's not like God ever uses Assyria to smack down Israel in the scripture. The Bible is very clear about this. Okay, Radio Church of God also began publishing the magazine The Plain Truth. Have you ever heard of this or seen it in airports or anything like that? The Plain Truth in 1934. It was distributed eventually as a free periodical. And <laughs> what I found interesting is its, its circulation was double that of Time magazine. When you think of Time magazine, you think pretty stinking popular, pretty famous. Yeah, The Plain Truth, twice that. Shared all sorts of Armstrong's doctrines, and most people reading it had no idea that they were reading doctrines of this guy that was this wacky, including the later doctrine that the world was going to be destroyed by nuclear war in 1975. Clearly, the Bible is extremely clear about that. The world was not destroyed by nuclear war in 1975. So, I... No, I know, I know. Anyway, but one of the interesting things is neither the plain truths nor any of the, the, the ministers in the Worldwide Church of God satellite locations were allowed to teach anything. They weren't allowed to do any Bible studies. They weren't allowed to speak on the radio. They weren't allowed to do anything that would disagree with any of Armstrong's personally created outlines. Again, does that mean that it's automatically wrong? Does that mean it's automatically a cult? No, but that is often a sign that the church you're in isn't a church you're in. It's a cult you're in. Again, doesn't prove anything, but if you say, wait, so you're the only person that has this right, everybody else is wrong, everybody else has always been wrong but you, and anybody who teaches anything that might even question any of the stuff that you're teaching is wrong, none of those prove anything, but when you have three or four or nine red flags waving the distance, you should start saying, I should maybe feel a little uncomfortable here. 1947, the Worldwide Church of God founded... Ambassador College campus in, in Pasadena, California. They spent so much money on this. They had imported teak. Actually, they had imported teak in the entryway of their main building and chandeliers that they bought from the Shah of Iran. So, I mean, it, it's... it's <laughs> they, they spared no expense. That's exactly what they were trying to do. I mean, they even down to the dimensions of various things. They were trying very hard to do... Solomon's Temple. At its zenith, the cult actually boasted as many members as the Evangelical Covenant Church has now. The Evangelical Covenant Church being the, large, the fastest growing denomination in the United States. So, interesting stuff. By the 1950s, the uh, Armstrong's uh, program, The World Tomorrow, uh, began airing on television, which is this is what I know him from. This is what, when I picture Herbert W. Armstrong, this is the mental picture that I have is from his television program. Um, has anybody ever seen any of these TV programs? Started from reaching millions of viewers. Now, he died at, in 1986 at the age of 93, but his son, Garner Ted Armstrong, is another person you might remember seeing late night TV, or Garner Ted Armstrong led the ministry and had taught on TV for years. 
But he had a tendency, an unfortunate, consistent tendency, to have sex with a lot of co-eds from Ambassador College. Um, and so he also started teaching more and more your classic bad televangelist stuff of, you really have to give me money. Let me talk for 30 more seconds, and then see if you really have to give me money. And so Herbert excommunicated his own son in 1978 from their church, and Garner Ted went on to have an even weirder cult of his own. Afterwards, the church went back to showing classic episodes, not reruns, not recycled, classic episodes of The World Tomorrow with Herbert. Now, here's the interesting thing, because this wasn't interesting yet. This is the interesting thing to me. The Worldwide Church of God, classic, we're the only ones that are right, and what we're saying is goofy. They morphed from a textbook cult to an arguably evangelical church after, after Herbert died. Armstrong named a guy named Joseph Koch as his chosen successor because he's like, well, I don't want Garner Ted there. I don't trust Garner Ted. Because whatever else you want to say about Herbert, he seems to be a very moral fellow. And he's like, and Garner is so not. So he said, Joseph, you do this. And Joseph said, okay, we're going to move little by little toward having a more mainstream theology, more mainstream doctrine. Maybe, maybe our ministers can study the Bible for themselves. They don't have to just do Armstrong studies. I mean, use that as a basis, but why don't you read the Bible yourself to see what you think? Let's get some cross-pollination here. He says, maybe going to doctors isn't technically heresy. It's not just heretics and people with a lack of faith. Start with prayer. But Luke was a doctor. You know, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe it's okay for women to wear makeup. No, the Bible says they can't. No. No, the Bible says their beauty shouldn't come from that. It doesn't mean you can't do that. Maybe interracial marriage is actually okay. No, it's all it's awful. No, no. Is it? Is that really what he's getting at? Or was it that Jews shouldn't mix with Gentiles? It never says French people can't marry Chinese people. It doesn't work like that. Maybe there's more to Bible study than just how America and Britain fulfill prophecy. Maybe there's more to Bible studies than just prophecy. I was talking to somebody this week who was telling me about their church. They said, it's great. They're really focused on prophecy. I mean, every sermon is all about the end times. Interesting. There is such a thing as bookend Christianity, right? The, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the last couple of chapters of, of, of Revelation. The rest is interesting, but these, these are what it's about. Pretty thick book that you're skipping. Maybe that whole Trinity thing makes some sense. Because Armstrong said, no, there's no Trinity. It's just God the Father, and Jesus was a great guy. There's no Holy Spirit. Maybe there is a Trinity. Maybe other churches could be Christians. It's possible. Maybe. Maybe not, no, they might not agree with them, but they could be Christians. Maybe the worldwide church of God is, and this is the thing that really got people upset. Maybe it's a new covenant church instead of just an old covenant church. Maybe instead of just being a church that is exactly Jewish except we staple a Messiah on it, maybe we should read the rest of the New Testament and say all that stuff is valid. Which means that that means that maybe we're saved by faith in Christ and not by works, because there's whole verses about that. Gave a sermon about this. Multiple ministers balked, and multiple ministers said, thank you. Yes, that makes sense. He died in 1995 and was succeeded by his son, Joseph. 
you get to do that as a junior. But within two years, they were admitted into the National Association of Evangelicals. Itself was created in 1942. I'll talk more about that next week. But so you're like, this was a cult. A cult that said everybody but us are apostates. 1997, National Association of Evangelicals says, no, you're, an, you're a mainstream evangelical church. In fact, in 2009, to make a clean break from it, they changed their name to Grace Communion International. Like, we don't want to be the worldwide church of God. We're tired of telling people, we're the worldwide church of God, but we're not crazy anymore. That's the official name of the church. We're the worldwide church of God, but we're not crazy anymore. It gets old after a while. Tell me, what can you learn from all that today? Before going any further on anything else, what can you learn from everything I just was talking about there? Anything? Anything about the creation of it? Anything about the change of it? Yeah. Did you raise your hand? No. Oh, something. That's the fact that they keep changing what they believe. Okay. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing when they change it to get weird. It's a good thing when they change it to try to get back to biblical. What were you going to say, Donna? Here you go. No matter, no matter how wacky you get, if other people can get in there and go, wait a minute, really, really, it's important that it's important that we come back to what really honors Christ. Even this, not just people are redeemable, whole movements are redeemable, right? And that doesn't mean that you're going to have a lot of, well, really good Nazis. Well, I mean, there are some out there. We'll talk about some, but anything is ultimately redeemable, yeah. Well, and then the fact that something that's really wacky and somebody that became a leader and instead of just breaking up, but how can work through this and make some changes instead of just giving up? I mean, you guys, these are, you guys hit the three things I was hoping, the first three things you said, great, all right. But yes, that, there is a time sometimes to, dif to distance yourself from error, to distance yourself from, from wrongness and say, you know, we're, we're going to do this right in a pure setting. But to know that even within the weirdest setting, you can say, now, this is hard, but I want to stick this out. I want to help. If I genuinely think things are going wrong, instead of just going in a corner and going, they're wrong, for me to say, I genuinely think it's wrong, and I love these people, and so I want to help. It's going to be hard. But I didn't take this job because it was so easy. I took this job because it's what God wanted me to do. And I'm pretty sure this is what God wants me to do. Really interesting. A number of church splits. This is one of the most justifiable church splits. If you're Joseph Tkach and you say, I'm in wacky world, and I really think it's wrong. I, I don't even think this is a Christian church anymore. And that's one of the most justifiable church splits you can imagine, isn't it? Say, I'm an evangelical in an extremely bizarre situation. But for him to say, I really think God wants me to pull this back from the brink of insanity. Praise God. Yes? When you realize that no congregation anywhere has all of the history. Well, we do. There's always individuals, and there's always that we all have a skew. And I'm we're kidding. all honestly standing up for what we can honestly believe is true, and we're grounding ourselves in the work, the real work. Yep. Then, then we're only going to aim. Absolutely. Nobody's got, nobody has cornered the market on truth. The trick is to try your level best, open-mindedly, to make sure you're as grounded as possible. I like the new name, Grace 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they're like, maybe we're saved by grace. Maybe we should put that in the name. Maybe maybe it's going to be hard for us to say we're a works in a church if our name is Grace. Speaking of insanity, um, 1936, Public Order Act 1936 was passed in Britain. When I show you a picture like this, what's your immediate mental reaction? Nazis. Nazis, obviously. Um, an attempt to prevent the growth of Nazi-like groups in Britain because this isn't Nazi Germany. This is London, right? You can tell because that's the Union Jack right there. So this is not Nazi Germany. This is London. Prevent the order, the growth of Nazis and Nazi-like fascist groups. Parliament passed Public Order Act 1936, banning the wearing of political uniforms in public. What's a political uniform? That's one. These guys were black. There were some that were red in, in the United States at the turn of the century. The idea of we're going to wear some sort of paramilitary uniform to show that you're part of this political group. This is a ban on paramilitary political parties like the German or Italian or Spanish fascists. Yes? How does that affect the salvation of the It's not a political uniform, it's a religious uniform. This thing. Boy Scouts? That's an interesting question. Because they would say, oh, no, it's a social organization. But, of course, that would mean maybe the fascists go, eh, so are we. <laughs> By the way, we also have a political agenda, but basically we just like to wear the uniforms. We think they're smart. Um, let me ask you good Americans. You're, you, guys are, you guys are Americans, and you're land of the free, home of the brave. Who would you support in this case? The pro-Nazi fascist or the democratic government that is taking action to prevent their rise? Clearly, you're going to support any government that prevents the rise of Nazism or fascism in their government, in their, in their, in their, in their nation, right? It's also the kind of thing that free speech, you say. Huh. Or to put it another way, <laughs> are you comfortable with cramping their free speech? Are you comfortable with a democracy that officially bans the freedom of speech of people who look and sound like people whom you've decided, maybe even for very good reasons, you don't really like? Why? We look at Hitler and we think Hitler is a messed up guy. We look at Mussolini we think he's a messed up guy. We look at, at Franco over in, in, in Spain we think he's a pretty messed up guy. We look at people here in Britain who are looking like them and we say, you can't be you. Right? You'd support that, right? These are dangerous people. You'd say it, it's illegal for them to present themselves in this way, wouldn't you? If you were scared of Hitler? It would be. Stick a pin in this. Let's go back to this. Fast forward three years to 1939, when Britain's Defense Regulation 18b allowed for the internment of any members of a fascist party or anyone even suspected of being a Nazi. That's a good thing, right? I mean, they're fascists. And they're, it's, if, let's say, we are, 1939, going to war against, uh, against Germany, and Gary is out on the street saying, Germany's the good guys. Our country is the bad guys. There's nothing wrong with Hitler. We really need to stop this war. You should, shouldn't you? Because he's, he's undermining the war effort. That makes sense, doesn't it? 
just like the Japanese were interned because of the Japanese. Yeah, remember that. Now, this suspended the right of habeas corpus. Anybody remember what habeas corpus is? This is where you sit there and you get to tell people that you've been wrongfully imprisoned. You get to go to, a, to a, another authority and say, this was unlawful imprisonment. Yeah, suspend that. Like Lincoln did. Remember when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus? So if Lincoln did it, it's okay, right? Or was it bad when Lincoln did it? Or is it complicated? Okay, it's complicated. So maybe this is a great idea. Maybe it's a great idea that the government can now lock you up with no warrant and no trial and no opportunity to contact a lawyer or tell a judge that you think you've been locked up inappropriately. That's what Lincoln did. Yes, we were. This is Britain at war. I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah, but when I come in late, sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. 1939, Britain's at war. So, it's okay. Because it's wartime. Okay. But arguably, isn't this what had to be done to those who, with kinship to the Nazis, to prevent an even worse situation going on in the nation? Now, Let's say it's complicated. Let's say it's a maybe, maybe not situation. And let's say you have a 68-hour-a-week job that is stressing you out, and you're all worried about the war, and your son is going off to war, and you're scared. And this is a complicated situation. It's a maybe, maybe not. How hard are you going to work to make sure that doesn't happen? Or are you going to go, I, I, fine. I'm not a Nazi, and I want my son to come back, so it's complicated. I, I, I'm a... I'm a, I don't know, I'm a bricklayer. It's, it's not my purview to figure this stuff out. Okay. Going off Judy said, from 1942 to 1946, FDR's Executive Order 90-66 allowed for the internment of people who were clearly descended from America's current enemy states due to problems with fifth columnist. What's a fifth columnist? Anybody know what that term is? Well, they can be. A fifth columnist is anybody who works within the system to undermine it. So it's like people who are Americans, but they're part of a German Bund and are sabotaging factories. Um, basically from the West Coast. They didn't take them from all over the country. Actually, they took them from all over the country. People don't realize this. There were 10,000 German and Italian Americans that were interned. It's just that there were 100... talking about the, the Japanese. Yes. The Japanese were primarily from the West Coast. But 10,000 German and Italian Americans were also interned. It says that 120,000 Japanese. Why was that? Why was only, only 10,000 German and Italian Americans and 120,000 Japanese? That's part of it. It's, it it's, it's, it's a lot easier to Americanize Johann Schmidt to John Smith than it is to Americanize... Yeah, Yamamoto to an American version of that where you say, well, I just assume you're exactly like me. What else? Um, yes, and it, it, if you remember when we were talking about this, it was a weird immigration because even the Japanese government itself said, don't let them become citizens. We do not allow Japanese people to go over and become citizens in the United States, but their children can be born citizens of the United States. And so there was a lot of hiccuping, even with their citizenship. What were you going to say, Emily? I, I was going to say, 
part of it. There's, there's another more emotive part of this. I was going to say, it's simply the fact that that was a personal attack on our country. Yeah, I mean, Italy hadn't bombed New York. Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. So there's also this, this emotive thing. Now, some people will sit there and go, so this is inherently racist. Yes, but exactly what do you mean by that? Is it racist, i.e., we can look at them and see? Racist, i.e., we can look at the names and figure this out? Racist, i.e., we're upset with them because they just bombed us? Yes, all the above. Did it save lives to, to intern them? We, there's no way to possibly prove that. Were there fifth column activities going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a Japanese pilot who was downed in Hawaii and, and was imprisoned. And so the Japanese Americans on that island attacked the base, killed people, and forcibly removed him so he could travel back to Japan. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there, was, there, there were Japanese or German or Italian boom movements going on in the United States. Did it save lives? Yes. But was it constitutional? Was it moral? I mean, these camps themselves were nothing like. So if you hear people talk about, we had our own concentration camps, just like the, the Nazis did. You go, um, no. They were nothing like Dachau, Auschwitz, any of those kind of things. I mean, they were like military barracks, and they ate military rations. And obviously, they would have much rather been in their own apartments, their own homes. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't horrific conditions. But does that matter? I mean, when it comes right down to it, does that matter? Is it okay to forcibly remove non-criminals from their personal homes because they look like people that you don't like anymore? Arguably. Whereas if the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians are our military enemies, then there's some reasonableness to it. There is, except not necessarily these not Japanese or Italians or Germans. And Hitler, if you remember from last week, made the, the argument that the reason they lost World War I was because of the Jews and communists and anarchists and the undermining that they did, which has a military ripple effect. What's interesting is most Americans today will support Britain's internment of fascists because they're bad guys. Of course it's okay to imprison Nazis because Nazis are bad guys, right? No. Nazi leaders, most of them were bad guys. And a large number of the people who joined the Nazi party were at least complicit in, in some of this stuff. But does... Being a Nazi mean you are a bad guy. No, it doesn't work like that. And yet, even today, we tend to use that word as if that is a categorical catch-all for, of course you're evil, which is totally unfair. But we do that all the time, right? I don't like you. I don't like what you stand for. Therefore, it's okay for me to hate you. Isn't it? It's okay for me to fear you. You don't look like me. You don't sound like me. If Hillary Clinton had become president, she's a monster. If Donald Trump becomes president, he's a monster. He doesn't even remotely look like me. I was just going to ask, at what point, at what point 
Let's not get lost in Hillary and, and Donald. At what point is internment of non-criminals okay? I'm asking that as a rhetorical question. It, it was an expedient thing. It made sense. Is but but it's okay because they're terrorists. Note for the record, Canada did the same thing. We always talk about American internment. Canada did the same thing, but they interned all Japanese in Canada. Every Japanese person in Canada was interned from 1941 to 1949. The United States, we did it for two years. They did it for eight years. Since For four years after the end of the war, they're still interned. Nobody ever talks about that, because the Canadians are all nice flannel-wearing people. Actually, yes. So why did England take such a hard-line stand? 1936, the fastest growing political party in the United Kingdom was the British Union of Fascists. That was the fastest growing party, led by Sir Oswald Mosley, the youngest conservative MP ever elected in Parliament. I elected, I think, 21, 22, something like that. Roundly considered the, the greatest public speaker in the English-speaking world at the time. And whether you believe it or not in this picture, He's considered a, an extremely handsome, debonair young man. Yeah, kind of. Ironically, part of his popularity came from the fact that he spoke against the brutality of British black and tans, uh, these um, military police units in, in Ireland who put down Irish rebellions nastily, and they were famous for their brutality. Which is ironic because it was very similar to what the brown shirts were doing in Germany. And they're Nazi fascists, and he's a fascist, and he's saying that sort of action is, is inappropriate. And people said, you know, he's right, it is inappropriate. So he moved to the Labour Party in the 1920s, he promoted himself as a baronet, which he was, which made all the nobility and all the upper crust people in England go, he's our kind of guy, right? Good-looking, young, well-spoken baronet. He was a baronet, or he made himself? He is a baronet, yeah. Oh. And he promoted himself as nonetheless someone who is supporting the poor and the downtrodden. He's forever talking about how we need to improve our, our work with the poor, which appealed to the poor and the downtrodden, right? So you've got the upper chunk of British society liking him and the lower chunk of British society liking him. And because he was, um, well, we'll get to the same. In election after election, he narrowly missed attaining high office. Kept getting close. He lost to Neville Chamberlain by 77 votes. 77 votes, which means Oswald ultimately came within 77 votes of being poised to be, you know, Prime Minister of England on the cusp of World War II. How important is that, do you think? <laughs> but his party kept growing, even as he kept barely missing, his party kept growing. And he campaigned, and this is interesting, because he campaigned on a platform of absolute patriotism, nationalism. Um, public works to employ the poor, nationalization of industry, protectionism from foreign entanglements, which means all those middle class people sat there and said, stable economy? That sounds great. So the upper crust, the lower crust, and the middle class people all kind of liked it. By the way, this national socialism, everything I just listed there, 
That's technically FDR's platform too, by the way. Right? I'm not saying he's a Nazi. Do not walk away saying, he said FDR is a Nazi. No, what I'm saying is, all this stuff is stuff that FDR believes. And by the way, it's also all stuff that the modern UK believes. They're all like, oh, that sounds interesting, but oh, we're scared of him. And then 20 years later went, you know what? How about we have a, a, a system of public works out the port? How about we nationalize and private, instead of privatizing industry, how about we nationalize? How about we do this? Almost everything that he said in terms of political platform, Britain now does, which tells you how predisposed in general they were toward him. But by 1936, after being extremely popular, he started kind of showing the darker side of some of these things. He traveled to Italy to learn specifically under Mussolini, but more pointedly, he began preaching more and more about the menace of Jews, anarchists, communists, anything like that, any foreigners in, in England. We need to get rid of them. That's the, 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 that's the stuff that is, was bugging everybody. On paper, he sounds like this great warm fuzzy, uh, uh, warm, fuzzy socialist, but in point of practice in his speeches, he, he was getting increasingly hateful. And what's interesting, he enraged so many people that when they marched on Cable Street, they attacked the, the BUM. They were attacked. Because this is, remember this picture I showed you earlier? That's them. That's, that's Mosley marching with his group on Cable Street in London. Roughly 3,000 uh, fascist supporters marched in a legal parade. They got permits and everything. But Mosley picked an area of London most populated with the people he keeps preaching against. He found the place most densely populated with Jews and communists and anarchists. Why would he do that? Is he trying to win them over? Is he just stupid? Could be a show of force for you. Better believe it. He's like, I'm trying to show that these people are dangerous. I am preaching from my pulpit that these people are dangerous. I want them to overreact. It's what I want. So roughly 20,000 Jews, communists, and other anti-fascists blockaded the streets and physically attacked them. With clubs, with broken glass, with broken chair legs, anything they could find. They started beating on the, the, the fascists, shouting, they shall not pass, which was a rallying cry at Verdun. That was what the French said, and it's also what the Spanish communists under Franco were saying in Spain. So this is a communist and French rallying cry against the Germans, and so everybody thought this is completely appropriate. And yes, that's where it's from. Who, who fought in World War One? Who hated fascism? Lots of people. But I mean, but I'm like, yeah, Tolkien fought in World War One. Tolkien. You could make a solid argument that much of the Lord of the Rings is against Germany. You know, those bad guys from the East who want to invade our peaceful British-looking countrysides? Yes. So yes, that whole, you shall not pass. You know, yeah. Straight out of this. 6,000 policemen fought back against the 20,000 protesters, and they were physically attacked. The protesters attacked them. They throw raw sewage on them out of buckets and things. They were just they took hundreds of them away to, uh, to forced labor as a result of this. Mosley himself, as soon as the police got there, immediately disbanded the march, completely forbade any of the fascists from reacting. He's like, you cannot fight back. Do not fight back. Do not raise arms against them. And as soon as the police are here, he's like, we will disband because I do not want any more loss of life. I don't want anybody else hurt. Yes, it is. He's the bad guy here, right? Because he did absolutely nothing wrong. <laughs> Your 
This just proves how horrible they are. Didn't you see our, our demonstrations? Doesn't that prove how horrible they are? That so many people would demonstrate so loudly? Doesn't that prove that they're the ones in the wrong? Of course, since Mosley said those people are dangerous and they're overturning cars and setting fires to things and attacking us, everybody who was wondering if they were dangerous all say, maybe Mosley's got a point, right? What can we learn from that today? Help me out here. If, hypothetically, there were a leader coming to power who argued that everybody who isn't his kind of people are dangerous, and the day he was inaugurated, people started smashing windows of storefronts, burning, uh, burning vehicles, attacking police, um, wearing paramilitary garb, carrying weaponry, and saying, make racist afraid again. That's that's going to undermine this leader, or is that going to make that leader feel like he's got a good point? And all those people in the undecided middle, are they going to say, wow, they're right? Or are they going to say, wow, he's right? That happened two days ago. You're right! That's where the pictures came from. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that protesting is wrong. Please understand. What I'm saying is, is you have to understand what you're doing and what you're helping to prove. Yes? Um, I was out there yesterday, and um, a bunch of people with pink hats were there, and people with signs and stuff were at the Park Museum. I was in the museum. And um, so I asked one of them, you know, hey, what are you out here today for? Well, we're supporting the Women's March in D.C. Okay. okay, well, what are they marching for? Well, you know, women's rights. Which rights? They, they can vote, and they can have jobs, and they can, you know, they have all these, what, what are they forbidden to do? And she had no answer. So, well, we don't want their rights to be taken away. We're just, like, so did Trump say he was going to take away the women's right to vote or, like, start paying women less by law? And she had no answer whatsoever. So you're just afraid of nothing. It's not based on anything. And she's like, no, we're not afraid. We're just supporting them. And she had no clear answer for what they were doing. And, and I will say... 
that's a two-edged sword because yes there's an awful lot of energy being expended amorphically I mean there's just there's not there's not a, a definite well because of this this is why we're doing this having said that um, there have been enough things that that Trump has expressed in a consistent clump that make people feel justified in feeling afraid in general and um, and when I say justified I don't mean therefore it's okay to go do whatever you want I'm saying the fear itself is understandable with things um, maybe think of it this way there's a flip side um, and, and, and even even President Obama said I, I think this was overkill so I, I, I feel comfortable using this President Obama was given a Nobel Prize for making people think he's going to do good things not for stuff he's done but for stuff we think he's going to do. And even Obama said, can you get a Nobel Prize for that? You know, I don't feel like I earned this. Um, but that idea of what we think will happen, therefore that is a thing, that is an existing tangible thing, is not a new phenomenon. Whether it's hope or fear, well, we've talked about it before. What did Epictetus say? People aren't afraid of things? Not really. They're afraid of their ideas about things. Those ideas about things become tangible facts to people. Mosley, and this is part of where I'm getting at with this, Mosley later held a pro-fascist rally in 1939 that was, and still is, the biggest indoor political rally ever held in Britain, according to the UK DNA Mail. So you go, the idea that you're shutting them down by having, by overkill, by having exactly the reaction that they told everybody you would have? Not the case. It just kept bolstering his case. He kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but it became a timing issue. Like Someone? Yeah. They said, okay, we've got to crack down. No more alcohol. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, that didn't work. Sort of did, but sort of got another problem. Yeah. Well, but it did break the alcoholism rate in the United States well, significantly. Okay. But, so, I mean, but, but you're right, is it created arguably more problems. Um, but like I said, it was a timing issue. If, if they had grown fast enough, and if he had won those election seats, then Britain would have been fascist when Hitler started invading Poland and stuff. And that would have been significant, right? But as it was, Mosley wasn't in power when Germany invaded Poland and Britain declared war on Germany. And but at least he wasn't fascist, yeah. Um, which means that Mosley and his group were detained and interned by Defense Regulation 18B, along with his wife and newborn son. They're all thrown into prison camps, just like, like we've talked about before. So you said that you go, if things had gone another way, just a little bit of timing, and we'll talk maybe about timing when we talk about Pearl Harbor, but if things had gone just a smidgy bit differently in terms of timing, there may not have been an Allied victory in World War II. But as it is, Mosley went, oh, I timed this badly, and I hitched my start of the wrong people. And it was over. And after that, especially after the London bombings and things, fascism never did again become popular in England in general. However, neo-Nazi groups such as the National Action are, are on the rise in Great Britain again. By the way, does that logo remind you of anybody else's logo? <laughs> Keep up with the tour, Jenny. I'm pointing here to this one. <laughs> 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 
can't, as we were talking before, you can't kill a social movement, even a vile social movement, by legislating it away. It does not work like that. You have to change the people. Oh, let's move to something a little bit. Yes. Edward sent to his own? Yeah. Let's talk about that some other time. Okay. <laughs> it's a whole other, because it's a whole other story with it. All right. Um, what else are talking about? Okay, 1939. Methodist Church is founded. And you're going to say, no, it wasn't. Methodist Church has been around for hundreds of years. No, it hasn't. It's only been around since 1939. Deal No, no. There is no United Methodist Church. Just the, the Methodist Church. The Methodist Episcopal church had been around for hundreds of years, right? Not the Methodist church. And you might go, oh, no, seriously. Up until this point, Methodists just saw themselves as a flavor of Episcopalian. They weren't Methodists. They were Episcopals who were Methodists, as opposed to Episcopals who weren't. These are Episcopals who are. And, they, and they're feeling more and more like the Episcopal church is moving away from them doctrinally. But they're like, no, we see ourselves as essentially Episcopals. But the Methodist Protestant Church uh, split off from them back in 1828 because they said, we don't want to be Episcopal. Uh, we, 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 we want to be Methodist in our flavor, but we're not Episcopal. We want to be Congregational. Episcopal, in, in part, means you've got these bishops over you and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, we don't, we don't think that's God's way of doing things. We, we think each congregation should govern themselves. So they broke away and said, yeah, I mean, we'll be the Methodist Protestant Church. And then the Methodist Episcopal Church South split off from them back in 1844 over the issue of slavery, like the Southern Baptists did, right, in 1845. So you've got these splits. There's the Methodist Episcopal Church, the Methodist Protestant Church, the Methodist Episcopal Church South. But in 1939, all three of them said, you know what, let's come back together again. We can work on this. We can try to round off the edges of what we disagree on. And we're just going to be the Methodist Church. The whole point of the name is to remove any kind of modifier, right? It's it's not an Episcopal church. It's not a South church. It's, not Protestant, it's just Methodist. Can we all just be Methodist? Can we agree that we're at least that? Which is kind of huge when you think about it, because this is the first time in history that a major denomination was created simply around the flavor of Wesleyan Methodistism. It's like, no, no, you're not just Episcopals who want to be Methodist. You're not just... Methodists who, Episcopal Methodists who kind of want to do it this differently this way, or Episcopal Methodists, but you're down in the South. No, no. We're all just Methodists. And if you ever find yourself saying, why is it that the Methodists just refuse to have a cogent, consistent statement of faith where they have, can we all just agree? Back when I was in college, um, all the Methodist churches around the United States um, tried, and this is an interesting backwards way of doing this, they tried to poll all the churches to see what they believed, to see if, as a group, as a committee of churches, they could come up with a statement of faith that they could all agree to. It wasn't a statement of faith that we asked you to agree. It's everybody come together. What do we... And they couldn't come up with one. They couldn't come up with a, with a reasonable statement of faith that everybody would agree to. So they finally went, ah, okay, redo. Let's try this a little differently. Um, but if you've ever wondered about that, saying, well, why can't they just... Realize the whole point of why the Methodist Church was founded in 1939 was to say, can we get past all that stuff and just worship God next to each other and be vaguely Wesleyan? In 1968, the Methodist Church united with the similarly Wesleyan 
Evangelical United Brethren Church to form the United Methodist Church, right? And that's what we know them as today. So the Methodist Church has only been around since 1939. The United Methodist Church has only been around since 1968. Arguably, Methodism has been around for hundreds of years. But if you're wanting to be honest about it, no. and, and part of this is just, you know, <laughs> you're being funny. But do you see why this is kind of an important paradigm shift within the Methodist Church is to say, we're not Episcopals. That's not our driving force. Our driving force is that we follow Charles and John Wesley. Our driving force is that we are Methodists. Kind of important. Well, I know that they never wanted to start their own church anyway. So no, exactly. Kind of makes sense. So, on some levels, I really do believe, just like, just like I think Calvin would be offended that people call themselves Calvinists first, because he's just trying to be biblical from his perspective. Arminian, Arminius would be offended people call themselves Arminians because he's like, I was just trying to poke holes in Calvinism. I'm not trying to create a systematic theology necessarily. Um, Luther would have loved that people call themselves Luther. <laughs> uh, Menno Simons would have been freaked out that people called themselves Mennonites because he'd be like, wait, what? I, I, I'm desperately trying to fade into the background. I genuinely believe that, that the Wesleys would have said, wait, you're calling yourselves Wesleyan? You're missing the point entirely for much the same reason as Calvin going, no, 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 no. Don't focus on us. Focus on the biblicality of what we're saying. But yes, this is kind of a, an important turning point. And I want you to understand why it's called the United Methodist Church. Because multiple different denominations all came together and said, let's round off all the square edges so we can all fit into whatever holes we all agreed we'd be comfortable in. Pros and cons of that, always. Point counterpoint to that. At the same time that they were trying to say, how do we figure out this Christianity thing? Whoa. Hitler! What? what? I just stand by an image of the swastika with the cross at the same time. Well, they're the same thing. Um, yeah, that's what Hitler said. It's the same thing. Um, Hitler is developing, clarifying something called positive Christianity in Germany. This is Christianity, and we're going to rally behind it. They had their own, their own flag that had the, the cross on it. It's okay, isn't it? It's okay to make a flag that mirrors your nation's flag if you put a cross on it and call it the Christian flag, isn't it? I'm sorry, the only problem we have with this is that we've decided that the Nazis were bad guys, right? Because otherwise, if I were to pull out that flag sitting up there, you know, the Christian flag that's based on the American flag, that's good, because it's red, white, and blue, right? And it's got the blue in the corner like we do. It's okay to make a flag based on your nation's flag, as long as you put a cross on it. Unless that nation's bad, in my estimation, to begin with. By the way, I totally agree with you. But do you see my concern? Look at how many flags have a cross on them. That, too. That, too. This is, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a problem with saying it's inherently bad because it's not us. Um, so, positive Christianity. Is designed by a guy named Alfred Rosenberg, who was the commissar for the supervision of intellectual and ideological education for the Nazis. He was in charge of helping people think right. And so he created this thing called Positive Christianity that preached a very unique way of looking at Christianity. It argued that the Old Testament was Jewish and thus corrupt. Very Marcion, if you remember back when we were talking about that kind of stuff. Now, anything Jewish is bad. Old Testament is bad. Neither Jesus nor the New Testament were really Semitic, but they were rather 
Aryan. And by that I mean Nordic. And by that I mean Jenny. So, <laughs> you are, you are, you are a poster child. I'm the only one of my family. I know, that's the funny thing. Okay. Have you said, no, Jenny's not the poster child for Nazis. She's just, but she's just very Nordic looking. There you go. But, I didn't doctor any of these pictures. I mean, this is, these are the way we tend to, a lot of people tend to view Jesus. A very pale, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. Because there's a lot of those in first century today. Strangely enough, yeah. Um, which itself is a bad use of the word Aryan. Because Aryan is referring to people of, like, the region like Iran. When you, people, when you think of people like Iranians, you think blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, narrow nose. You go, no, not so much. But this, this basic area over here, southern Russian states, northern Iranian states, who call themselves the Arya. Yeah. In the Hindu caste system, the Aryans are the top caste. Yep, because it comes from a Sanskrit word meaning the noble ones, the honorable ones, the respectable ones. I mean, they're just genetically superior. Still dark skin, dark hair, but genetically superior. Not known for its Nordic features so much, right? <laughs> Having said that, what's interesting is you go, well, but wait a minute. The Europeans using the term Aryan are using it much the same way as the Aryans use the term Aryan. We're the genetically superior super race. Actually, you don't look that much different. We're the genetically superior super race. You're not listening. It's because you're a lower caste. <laughs> you just don't understand our superiority. But you aren't superior, see? Stop it! <laughs> And that's exactly the way the Nazis did it, right? So I suppose, even though it is genetically, historically wacky, it is semantically valid. Because they're using Aryan exactly the same way that the Aryans did. Just pointing toward different things. Anyway, point is, they said, instead of focusing on the passive negative weak points of the Christ myth, you know, stuff like that Jesus died on the cross, obviously defeated, the fact that he is calling us to some sort of ethereal future otherworldly heaven thing, those are weak. Those are negative. I'm, I'm thinking back to the Vikings' reaction to Christianity. Exactly. We should emphasize his victories. We should emphasize the fact that he, he had miraculous powers. He, he cleansed God's temple of those Jews, didn't he? Didn't he? Did Jesus cleanse the temple of Jews? Yes or no? No, he didn't. There were no Jews in the temple that he cleansed? Yes or no? Did he cleanse the temple of Jews? Did he keep Jews out of the temple? Yes or no? Why do you mongrel races always want to convolute simple questions? Did he not... He's the money changer. What did they think about the resurrection? Booyah! That's ultimate Exactly. Perfect example. Even death couldn't hold him. By the way, do you remember somebody named Lyndon LaRouche? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember... When the LaRouches would have their press conferences and people would ask perfectly legitimate questions and they would shout them down saying, have you had your AIDS test? Have you had your AIDS test? How do I even know that you, you're not infecting everybody in this room? If you shout loud enough and call people dangerously scary sounding things, they'll tend to shut up, which is kind of bad for Anyway, but while talking about kicking the Jews out of the temple, he called them those enemies of the human race, as Jesus realized. See, emphasize all those victories, and thus, like Jesus Christ, we should be tenacious fighters for our nation and for our ideals. We should be positive. We should be proactive. 
We should follow a positive Christianity instead of this negative, passive one. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we follow an active, positive Christianity instead of a negative, passive one? Wouldn't you agree? Yes or no? It's a yes or no question. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but if you're not defining the terms carefully, you could just agree with the Nazis. So you got to be careful with this. New Nazi minister for church affairs, Hans Carroll, uh, preached to clergy, to clergy, in 1937. God's will reveals itself in German blood. Christian, <laughs> Christian. Okay, again, we go back to Herbert. Herbert was saying that the Brits and the Americans are the people of God. Have you ever, ever heard anybody in America ever talking about how um, the Americans are essentially the good guys in Revelation? Yes, yes and I also like Good. As long as you're consistent. Ah. God's will reveals itself in German blood. Christianity is not dependent on the Apostles' Creed. True Christianity is represented by the party. And the German people are now called by the party, and especially by the Fuhrer, to a real Christianity. The Fuhrer is a herald of a new revelation. Now, obviously, if you're a pastor, you're a good Lutheran pastor, as most of the were in Germany at the time. What's your reaction to reading this? <laughs> What's next? No, I said it was mixed. It was mixed. How so? Well, some pastors embraced it, but several stood up against it, and then they slowly disappeared. They did. So. German pastors, in general, began teaching, as the Nazis told them, that Jehovah was the great thunder god of, well, wasn't he the god of the skies? Isn't Jehovah the god who brought the rains and brought the storms? Isn't he? In the Old Testament, isn't he? Okay, so he's basically Thor. I mean, isn't he? I mean, we have all of our myths already in place about a great, powerful, positive, manly thunder god. And that Jesus was the classic Teutonic ideal of this great bloodied hero who defeats the dragon with his final breaths, the great Siegfried or Siegfried or whoever you want to go, recreating Christ more in keeping with what the culture found attractive at the time. Help me out here. Why did this catch on with people? What can we learn from this today? Why did otherwise perfectly decent German pastors preach this? Not just because they had to, but because they started believing it. Why did people sit there in the church and say, Actually, that makes some sense. Absolutely, I think so. But this made him feel a lot better. Why is it that a couple years ago, a best-selling Christian author said, we have feminized Christ, we have feminized God. It's all about sitting in a church and praying and loving and caring, all which is great. Christ is a manly God. When I think of Jesus, I don't think of this rapid, namby-pamby, pale guy that prays for people. I picture, well, Maximus in, in the movie Gladiator. That's how I like to picture Christ. Bloodied in the arena. Massively best-selling book. Why is that? Why do people go, yeah, that non-biblical image is exactly the way I like to think of Jesus. Or I'll even generalize that. I'll even generalize that. Anybody that ever felt like it, they just didn't connect at a church, but I liked that movie, suddenly at least have something to latch onto and go, 
Oh, okay, that I can connect with. When we think of strength, when we think of strength, we have very definite mental pictures. When we think of an action movie, very rarely will you ever see a movie poster for an action movie where the main character doesn't have a gun in his hand in the movie poster. Now, I'm not even being like anti-gun. I'm just saying almost never we can't conceptualize an action movie where the hero doesn't have a gun in his hand in the movie poster. There are certain things that we just automatically associate with strength. Pardon me? Well, it depends on when it's set, you know. Okay, so, or, or if it's an Avengers movie, a hammer, you know. But it's got to have some sort of deadly weapon in his hand because we have a specific look uh, in our minds of, of what strength is. And strength is, in general, as a culture, <laughs> okay, but I like to think that men also, yes, but I like to think that men also can have a strength of character, a strength of conviction a strength of, of taking a stand on things, you can be strong. Some of the strongest people I know have been pacifists who have stood there and said, I will just stand in front of this tank in the square. That's strength. <coughs> Not all. Look at the point offer. Not all pastors capitulated and, adop and adopted these teachings. About 20% took a stand against it. About 80% didn't. Think about that for a second. Four out of five pastors said, okay, whether because they were scared or because they agreed with it, and they were, those 20%, those, those, those one out of five, tended to get it either imprisoned or executed. One of the most famous ones was Lutheran, that was Lutheran pastor and theology professor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is where we'll pick it up next week. But stop and think, when we've talked about all this stuff today, how much has fear and demagoguery pushed people one direction? And yet, how much does strength of character, strength of conviction, potentially pull back even the most insane ones from the brink? Do we want to push ourselves, our churches, our nation, what have you, more and more into insanity and chaos? Or do we want to be bastions of sanity correctness. Not, everybody else is doing it wrong and I hate you for doing it. No. Let me bring you back to truth. Let me bring you back to wisdom. Let me bring you back to God. I'm not just going to try to legislate it. I'm going to try to change the people. Let's close and then we really need to close, but then remember what you're going to say. Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us such clear and powerful examples in history that speak to precisely where we're at as a church today, as a nation today, as individuals, as families. Pray, give us the wisdom and the strength from you to take the right stands for the right reasons and the right ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Judy, please, what were you going to say? Oh,